Good morning, Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. We are concluding the first quarter of the third year of our Answers Bible Curriculum today with our lesson, Jesus Calls Followers. This technically was supposed to be the lesson last week, but as you know, I took one of the lessons and split it in two, and I just used our extra day today, normally review day, I used our extra day to catch up. So that's why we're on lesson 12 while the other classes would have seen this lesson already. If you're a guest in this class and you are coming from one of the other classes, um, it will be a review day for you. This would have been normally a review day, but we're just going to be reviewing, at least from your perspective, the previous lesson. So hopefully this will allow you to know those things that you learn better and maybe a little bit deeper. Last week, we saw the final event in Jesus' preparation for ministry in his life, and that was his temptation in the wilderness. We saw last week that Jesus' responses to temptation are very instructive for us. They tell us and teach us a lot. Jesus both knew and believed the scripture. So no matter what form of sinful indulgence was presented to him by Satan, Jesus unswervingly trusted in his father's good character in his father's good provision, and his father's good timing. The different ways that that manifested in, in Jesus' temptations were these. Jesus refused to go outside the father's will to provide for his own needs, his own basic needs. Choosing rather to wait on the father to provide for the son's hunger rather than supernaturally create food for himself. By the way, I mentioned last week that Jesus fasted, and, and I wasn't sure whether it was a full fast or maybe just eating a little amount of food, but I just noticed from the parallel passage in Luke regarding Jesus' temptation, Luke is quite explicit when it comes to what kind of a fast it was. He says, Jesus ate nothing for 40 days. So it was indeed a full fast. So even while weak and basically starving, Jesus saw the Father's will as more important than food. Even that the Father's will was his food. It was more necessary and enjoyable than anything else. So Jesus refused to go outside of the Lord's will to provide for his basic needs. Jesus refused to test the promises of the Lord, promises of protection. He refused to test such promises through folly or disobedience. Jesus did not need to see the Father's protection visibly to believe in his God. He would not test the Lord. Jesus also refused, in his third temptation, he refused to obtain worldwide dominion by worshiping Satan. He chose to trust in the worthiness of his Father, to be loved, worshipped, and obeyed, even to the point of humiliating death on the cross. And the reward that came after that, Jesus decided he would wait for the Father's perfect reward rather than try to obtain his own reward without righteous suffering. Now, these godly attitudes and beliefs that were Jesus's in response to temptation, they ought to be reflected in our own hearts as Christians. We also saw last week, though, that the main point of hearing about Jesus's temptations was to again demonstrate to us that Jesus is the perfect Savior, and Messiah. Jesus was tempted, and he can identify with his people's struggles and give them help in time of need. But Jesus 
also overcame temptation, every temptation, succeeding where both man's first representative, Adam, and where God's chosen people, Israel, failed when they were tested. Jesus then showed himself to be a perfect new representative, both of mankind and of Israel. And Jesus could therefore present himself, present his life, as an acceptable life of obedience on behalf of those he would come to represent. That is, those who repent, turn from their sins, and believe in him. When tested in the desert, Jesus came out victorious, which had to be true of God's perfect Redeemer. And this is great news for all of us, because when we fail, and as we repent, we can claim Jesus' perfect and victorious righteousness on our behalf. And such will keep us safe in the love and in the security of God. Now, how appropriate it is for Jesus to have been tested and proven before he officially begins his preaching ministry. And that's where we're going to now. To remind you of the timeline for Jesus' life, Jesus was born around 5 B.C., he was baptized and tested around 26, or 26 A.D., so 5 B.C. to about 26 A.D. He's about 30 years old, and he, be, he now begins his three-and-a-half-year ministry. But where does the Messiah begin? What does this proven Messiah and Son of God do first? Well, as we'll see today, even as he begins preaching, he picks out specific people to follow him. But whom did Jesus choose? When did he choose them? Why did he choose them? How did these men react to Jesus' calling? And what did these events show us about Jesus and how we ought to react to meeting the Messiah? That's what we're going to find out today. So here's our outline for our, quest, or for our lesson. We're first going to take a look at the first calling of disciples that we hear in the Gospels in the book of John, John chapter 1. We'll then look at a second calling of the disciples that we see in Matthew 4. And then we'll finish by more specifically discussing our own application of these passages. All right, that's our game plan. Let's pray before we go on. Oh, Lord God, it is a great word that we have to look at today. I pray, God, that you would display yourself through this word, that the people would hear its truth and be impacted by it, and that I would as well. God, may your spirit change us in the way that it was meant to by your word. Sanctify us, encourage us, convict us as we need, cause us to become more holy as you are holy, more effective for you as witnesses while we're on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 1. If I asked you where Jesus first called his disciples, your mind might immediately go to the scene of several of the disciples in their fishing boats being called by Jesus. And Jesus saying something about making them fishers of men. That is an important part of Jesus calling his disciples. But that's not actually where Jesus first gained his disciples. It's not the first call. The Synoptic Gospels 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they omit the real first step of Jesus's calling followers. But John, the Apostle John, in his gospel, he gives us a little extra information about the earliest days of Jesus's ministry. So that's where we're going to start. Look at the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29. And we're going to read down to verse 51. What's the context here that the passage we're about to read? Well, John the Baptist has been baptizing by the Jordan River. People have been coming to him, even people from the Pharisees. And some of these people asked John whether John is actually the Messiah himself. John declares to them, I'm not the Christ, but the Messiah is among you, though you don't know it yet. That's what he says right before our passage. Now, let's actually read our passage, starting verse 29 to the end of the chapter. The next day, the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, or Philip found Nathanael, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, that's where our text ends. So let's now use our inductive Bible study method to analyze this passage, and we'll start with basic observations of the text. Notice that these events in our passage cover the next three days after people from the Pharisees visit John. On the first day, John gives testimony about Jesus. On the second day, two of John's disciples start following Jesus, and they grab a third disciple with them. On the third day, two more disciples begin following Jesus. So by the end of the passage, we have five disciples. Notice then that these events do not take place before Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness, but after. John the Apostle, our gospel writer, does not mention anything about Jesus' time in the wilderness in this gospel. But for these events to take place in their sequence as presented, this must be after Jesus' time in the wilderness. Now, notice the testimony that John the Baptist gives about Jesus. John the Baptist gives five declarations. First declaration, he says, look, people, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. By the way, a lamb taking away sin should remind John's listeners of what? For sure. The sacrifice of the Old Testament, particularly the sin offering and the offering on the Day of Atonement, even the Passover sacrifices, all of these come to mind when John says, the Lamb of God. Especially the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, this is the one. Number two, John says, here is the one that I said is greater than I because he existed before me. Wait a second. Jesus was conceived and he was born after John. So how could Jesus have existed before John? What's the answer? John was testifying to him about Jesus, that Jesus was God. That's the only way that Jesus could have existed before John. And that's going to connect with what Jesus declares later in the gospel when he says, before Abraham was, I am. This is a recognition of Jesus' deity. So that's the second declaration. Then John the Baptist says, I did not recognize him at first, but I came baptizing so that all Israel might see him. And then number four, when I baptized him, I saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove, just as God told me would happen for the one who himself baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I saw all this happen. That confirms what God said to me. And then number five, John says plainly, this is the Son of God. That's quite a testimony from John the Baptist on Jesus' behalf. And then notice that, or notice the first two men that follow Jesus. These two are disciples of John the Baptist. But they leave John, and they follow Jesus the next day, after John says again, behold, the Lamb of God. 
we learn that one of these disciples is named Andrew. But we never hear the other disciple's name. Kind of curious. In fact, throughout this gospel, that is the gospel of John, there's always one disciple hanging around with Jesus, does different things, but who remains nameless. Though sometimes he is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is this? Well, we'll come back to that. Notice, though, that these two disciples call Jesus teacher, and they ask him where he's staying, and then they stay with him. Now, verse 41 says that before the two go to stay with Jesus, one of the two, Andrew, he goes to find his brother Simon, and he tells Simon, we have found the Messiah. Now, what does Andrew then do? Why, he brings Simon to Jesus. And then notice what Jesus does. He looks at Simon, and he declares a name change. He says, I know that you are Simon, the son of John, or Simon Barjona, but now you shall be called Cephas. That's the Aramaic name that means rock or stone, and it translates to Peter in Greek. So Jesus declares a new name for Peter. Now notice verse 43. Jesus intends to go to Galilee, but... Jesus first finds Philip. And notice, this is the third time in the text that we have the idea of finding someone. He found Philip. And we're going to see that term twice more. People are doing lots of finding in our passage. Jesus finds Philip, and Jesus says to Philip, follow me. We then hear that Philip, Andrew, and Peter are all from the same city, Bethsaida. That's a city on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, by the way, was on the west of the Sea of Galilee. West side, actually a little bit inland. but So you got two cities on the opposite sides of the Sea of Galilee. So these three men are all from the same area. But notice that once Philip is called, what does he do? He goes to find Nathaniel. Nathaniel is also called Bartholomew in the Gospels. Philip goes to Nathanael, and what does he say? Philip says, we have found him. Who? We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Wait a second. What did Moses in the law ever say about the Messiah? Do you remember? That's right. So back in Deuteronomy, uh, I have the reference here, Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, A prophet like me will arise among you, and to him you must listen. And those words apply to the Messiah. So Moses, the first writer of the, in the Old Testament, he declared something about the Messiah, and, of course, the rest of the Old Testament does, too, as we get the prophets, especially. One of the Old Testament to the other, you have all the writers looking forward to the coming of Messiah. And Philip says, now we found him. From the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, there are declarations about him. But now he's come, and we have found him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. But notice Nathaniel's response. 
how would you characterize Nathaniel's attitude? Yes, certainly skeptical. Now, this may simply be that he doesn't want to believe something without evidence. He's trying to be an honest guy. Or maybe he's just a little contemptuous. Because what does he say? Well, when Philip mentions that Jesus is from Nazareth, Nathaniel responds, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, in the Bible, Nazareth, one of these cities of Galilee, seems to be a place that's held in some contempt, not only among the Jews, who were pretty contemptuous of the area of Galilee in total, but even among Galileans, Nazareth was a city that you looked down on, perhaps because it was small, it was rural, and it was unimportant. But Nathaniel uses some hyperbole to express his skepticism and perhaps contempt. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, much less the Messiah, for which we've all been waiting. Can anything good come? Philip simply replies, come and see. So Nathaniel goes. And notice that when Nathaniel approaches Jesus, Jesus is the one who speaks first, declaring that Nathaniel is indeed an honest and upright Jew. Jesus even quotes the Old Testament when describing Nathaniel. Psalm 32.2 says this. This is Psalm 32, verse 2. How blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That second part of the verse, that phrase is being applied directly to Nathaniel. But Nathaniel asks, perhaps again skeptical, how do you know me? But Jesus declares, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This answer deeply affects Nathanael. And Nathanael confesses, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But then Jesus makes two ponderous declarations. He says, you think what I told you, what I just told you was amazing? You're going to see much greater things than that. Then Jesus says, truly, truly, that is, Believe me, trust me, you know what I'm about to say is incredible, but it's absolutely true. You will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that is a very profound statement, but what is Jesus talking about? We can break this down into two parts. First, think back. Where in the Old Testament did we see angels of God ascending and descending on something? Yeah, Jacob's dream, what we sometimes call Jacob's ladder or Jacob's staircase. This is Genesis 28.12. Genesis 28.12 says, He, that's Jacob, he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. But what was the point of Jacob's dream? Well, we talked about it many months ago when we were still in Genesis. Remember what had just happened before that dream. Jacob had just stolen his brother's birthright. He was fleeing to Laban's house. But God gave this dream to Jacob. 
And God was showing Jacob, you don't normally see what I'm doing. But let me peel back the veil and show you what an active God I am. Look at all my angels. They're going up and down. They're coming from heaven, going back to heaven. They are accomplishing my will. I am not static. I am not, um, I am not doing nothing. I will indeed bring to pass the covenant blessings that were pronounced on you, Jacob. Therefore, do not be afraid. That was what God was showing Jacob in that dream. But back in John, Jesus alludes to that same instance in Genesis, but then he says something surprising. Not only will you see the angels ascending and descending, but what will be their staircase this time? Why, it's the Son of Man himself. It is Jesus himself. So we have this thing with the angels ascending and descending. But then this phrase, Son of Man, is very important. This is one of Jesus' favorite ways to describe himself in the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man. Literally, this phrase simply states that Jesus is human. He is the Son of a man. He is one of the sons of men. Now, that's significant because, as we have clearly gathered from the Old Testament, a Son of Man, or just a man, is, in a theological sense, Cursed, sinful, and unimportant. To be a son of man is to, in a way, be contemptible in God's sight. Listen to a few verses from the Old Testament that talk about what it's like to be a son of man. Psalm 8, verse 4. Psalm 8, verse 4. The psalmist writes, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 114, Psalm 114, verses 2 to 3. Psalm 114, verses 2 to 3, the psalmist writes this time, Yahweh has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3.18 Ecclesiastes 3.18, Solomon writes, after he observes life, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. The sons of men are but beasts. And this is just representative. We see men, we see the sons of men as insignificant and even sinful and corrupt throughout the Old Testament. But the Old Testament also uses the, the phrase son of man in some surprising ways. And we have to keep those in mind too when Jesus adopts this title. For instance, Psalm 80, verses 17 to 19. Not just the phrase son of man, but even the concept of son of man. Psalm 80, verses 17 and 19. Psalmist writes, he's speaking to God, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name, O Yahweh God of hosts. Restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. 
So here in that psalm, the psalmist cries out for God's provision, protection, restoration, but it involves God upholding a man, even the son of a man, the son of man. And then Isaiah, Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Whenever you think Isaiah 52 or 53, you're thinking about some of the prophecies about the Messiah. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Isaiah writes, speaking with uh, God's voice, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astounded at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. This involves a man, a special man from God, one of the sons of men. But most significantly is what Daniel says. You may remember this. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14. Daniel writes, as he views a vision from God, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So all of these things are in the background of the name Son of Man. Well, what do we make of all this? Well, let's now proceed to our second step. That is interpretation. Let's use our observations now to try and answer some interpretations, interpretation questions about the passage we just read. First, who is the unnamed disciple who was first called with Andrew? It's got to be the Apostle John. When we look at the Gospel of John compared to the other Gospels, it's interesting that while the other Gospels will talk a lot about the Apostle John, he's never mentioned in this Gospel. But there's always this unnamed disciple. And he seems to be doing things along that, that coincide with what the other Gospels say that John did. So, we should understand this unnamed disciple, the one who is called with Andrew. This is John the Apostle. Another question. What is significant about Jesus changing Simon's name to Peter? What does a name change itself signify? Say that again. Yeah, it's an, it's an expression of authority. Um, you could even say ownership. Remember back in Genesis, one of the things that God has Adam do is to name all the animals. That was a sign of man's authority over the beasts. Um, we see with Daniel and his friends, they are renamed by the king of Babylon. He was trying to show his authority, even his ownership of them. And it's also appropriate for Jesus as he becomes the rabbi or the teacher, the leader of these new disciples, that he would even choose to name some of them. And he chooses to do that for Peter. Now, there could be something even um, 
appropriate to his name about being a stone, being a rock. Maybe it's his, uh, his obtuseness, maybe at certain times. It could also be his, uh, found the, the foundational role that he will play in establishing God's church. But for whatever reason, certainly as a mark of authority and ownership, Jesus renames Simon to Peter or Cephas. Another question. If Nazareth is so unimportant and contemptuous even in the sight of Israel, why would God have his Messiah come from Nazareth? Certainly true. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. We're going to see in just a moment when we go to Matthew 4 that this connects with some of the prophecies given in the Old Testament, particularly one in Isaiah that says, from the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where the light comes from. So certainly Jesus would need to come from one of the cities of Galilee if he's going to fulfill that prophecy. But why else is it appropriate for Jesus to come from Nazareth, considering God's whole work of redemption? Well, think about salvation. Think about the, the uh, economy of salvation, the way that God does things when it comes to salvation. Whom does he choose to save? Whom does he choose to exalt? The ones that are contemptuous in the eyes of the world. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He does that with believers. It's then entirely appropriate that he would do that with his own Savior. Jesus, as we've already seen, he didn't come in, in pomp. He didn't come into Jerusalem. He wasn't born with all the splendor of royalty. He was born in Bethlehem. He was acclaimed by simple shepherds. And we're seeing that theme continue. He lives in Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. This no-name town, this unimportant town that even other people in Galilee looked down on. But this was to the glory of God. He was going to use even a savior from Nazareth. This shows even more of the son's incredible humility and the wisdom of God totally contradicting the wisdom of men. Another question. Why was Nathanael so affected by Jesus' declaration of seeing Nathanael under the fig tree? What's so significant about that declaration? Yes, I see that hand in the back. Yeah, for sure. He, he sees this as a demonstration of divine power in one way or another. It may simply be that he didn't think that anybody could know where, what the situation was when Philip arrived. Philip didn't have a chance to tell Jesus where he found Nathanael, but Jesus already knew. And he tells Nathanael before anyone even has a chance to talk. Now, perhaps you might say, well, aren't there a lot of fig trees in Israel? And couldn't Jesus have just made a lucky guess? Well, something about the, same, the situation makes, that, uh, un, it, it makes it so that couldn't be the case. Nathanael, as we've already seen, is pretty skeptical, but he, he is arrested by Jesus' statement. It may be that the fig tree was a secluded one or one that was very special to Nathaniel. 
And he was sure that nobody else knew about it or nobody else considered the significance of it. And yet this rabbi, this person that he's never met before, he knows this particular detail about Nathaniel. And he recognizes only someone from God, only even God himself, because he calls him the son of God. Only he could know. Yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks, Danny. With the two statements from Jesus, just to repeat what you said, Jesus really shows that he knows Nathaniel inwardly and outwardly. I saw you I'm from the outside, but I also see your heart. I know that you're an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And I think, yeah, maybe in both of those things affect Nathaniel. And he says, what Philip said is must be true. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He recognized something supernatural about Jesus. Another question. Considering the meaning of Jacob's staircase in Genesis, what was Jesus declaring about himself by alluding to the Genesis 28 account? You will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying? Well, if the staircase in Genesis was about showing God is accomplishing his will, he is actively sending his servants, having them go to and from the earth, all of that's happening behind the scenes and you don't see it. If that was true in Genesis, then the same thing is true when Jesus uses that description to talk about himself. Jesus was declaring himself to be part of, and even the focal point of God's continual work and plans. Angels will indeed continue to minister and accomplishes, accomplish God's will. But how will they do that? It will be via the agency of the Son of Man. And to say it another way, Jesus declares himself to be the connection between heaven and earth, through which God's angels will continue or God's angels will minister to and on behalf of men. Jesus was essentially telling Nathaniel, you are going to see God's great works unfold through and on me, the Son of Man. You're not just going to see God is active, but you're going to see all of that is happening through me. I am the focal point. In a sense, I am the bridge through which all of God's all of God's plans are being accomplished. You're going to see that. You're going to see the great things of God. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I think we can say that too. 
it's not merely that just as God was active in the Old Testament in accomplishing his will, so he is in the New Testament accomplishing everything through Jesus. But even what he began to accomplish through Abraham and through Jacob with the Abrahamic covenant was going to find its fulfillment. And that was, you're right, Bill, the part of the context of that dream to Jacob in Genesis 28 is that the promises of Abraham had just been extended to Jacob. And we do see their continuation and even their culmination in Jesus. So we see this, uh, this declaration, this great declaration about Jesus regarding angels ascending and descending. But also there's that second part. By taking on the title of Son of Man, what was Jesus declaring about himself? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, this is a messianic claim. I think we can actually see in the term Son of Man the same thing that we've been seeing in these last couple of lessons about Jesus. There is a declaration of Jesus' humanity, but also in his, of his deity, even in the phrase the Son of Man. Because a Son of Man, there's a clear identification with man, sinful and contemptible man. Jesus became a man. He is a son of man that he might save the sons of men. But also there is that because of promises made about a certain son of man and even promises made about the rule and glory of that son of man, there is a declaration in this term of messiahship and even deity. Jesus says, I am the special son of man who will redeem Israel. I will suffer for Israel's sake. I will come on clouds of glory, and I will receive total dominion from the Ancient of Days. This term, Son of Man, is not a mere term of humility that, that Jesus adopted. This is a declaration about himself as the Messiah, even as God, which you might not expect because you're like, Son of Man, how could that be something about God? But because of what the Old Testament said regarding a special son of man. And this is exactly what Jesus says to the Sanhedrin later on when Jesus is about to be crucified. They ask him, they demand of him, are you really the Messiah or not? And he says to them, Matthew records, Matthew 26, 64, Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to them, you have said it yourself. That is, you have said, and you are correct, that I am the Messiah. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus declaring there? He's alluding back to Daniel 7 for them. He tells them, I am the one that Daniel spoke about. I will come on the clouds of glory. I am that Son of Man. I am God. And of course, that's one of the reasons why they put him to death, because they, would, they refused to believe that. And they saw that as blasphemy. So understand then that this term Son of Man is no, no mere meek title. It is a specially chosen title that simultaneously declares Jesus' redemption of humanity and his kingship and coming glory. Now, just a couple other things. Notice that in our chapter, Jesus never told his new followers to go bring others to him. Nevertheless, they did so. 
Andrew goes to find Peter, brings Peter to Jesus. Philip goes to find Nathaniel, brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Why did they do this? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, for sure. The You're right. I'll just repeat a little bit of what you said, that clearly Philip, Nathaniel, um, and Andrew, even Peter and John, they were looking for the Messiah. That's why Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist. And we certainly know from the book of Luke that there were plenty of people who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Israel as a nation was looking forward to their Messiah, but as you point out, Roy, they weren't looking for the Messiah as God intended the Messiah to come. But these people were looking for the Messiah. And so once one of them found the Messiah, encountered the Messiah, he knew that other people were looking for the Messiah too, so he wanted to go tell them about the Messiah. Wanted to tell them, we found the one you're looking for. You can see that there's just a basic love and care for another person and sharing that declaration it's not as if philip or andrew said all right i found the messiah but i don't need to tell others about it no he this is such a great thing everybody's been looking for the messiah everybody needs to know about this messiah and so they naturally go and find a close friend or go and find a brother and they tell him come see the messiah has finally come Of course, Jesus will later command his disciples to do basically what they are doing. He will command them to tell others about him, teach others about him, bring others to him. But even before we get an official command, we see the disciples telling others about the, uh, the coming of Messiah and bringing people to Jesus. So we see at the end of John 1, Jesus has five disciples. John, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. But this is just part one of the calling of these men. With these five, Jesus begins some of his preaching and ministry. He also begins to do miracles, and we hear about that in the next chapter of John. But there's another calling coming for these disciples. And we're actually going to move out of John to see the second calling. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at part two of the calling of these disciples. Let's look at Matthew 4, verses 12 to 22. We won't analyze this passage as deeply, but let's notice a few things. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. Follow along with me. Now when Jesus heard that John, as John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Notice a few things. Notice that some time has gone by since the events of John 1. There we saw John baptizing and testifying about Jesus. But here, John is in prison. This is clearly not the case in the book of John, chapter 1. Moreover, we see Jesus move to Capernaum. He's no longer in Nazareth. And he's preaching repentance in light of God's imminent kingdom arrival. Notice also that while walking along and likely preaching at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees Simon and Andrew practicing their trade. They're fishermen. He tells them to follow him. And from what we know in John, he tells them to follow him again. But this time he adds, I will make you fishers of men. We then see a description here that we did not see earlier in John. Notice how the disciples react. They immediately leave their work. They totally leave it behind and they follow Jesus. Same thing happens with James and John. When Jesus calls them, they leave the boat, they leave their father, and they follow Jesus. So what's going on here with this second calling? Why, what's significant about what we see here? Well, noticing that this is a part two is informative for us in at least two ways. First, it shows us why these men are so willing to follow Jesus. It's not as if some random guy comes along, Jesus, talks to some people he doesn't know and just says, follow me. I mean, he is God. He could, he could force somebody to, to follow him if it were God's will. But this isn't the first time the disciples have encountered Jesus. They already know about him. They've already, in a way, become his disciples. They've heard his preaching. They've been taught by him. They've seen some of his miracles. They know who it is that is calling them. So that's helpful to realize. But a second thing to realize is notice the difference between this calling and that which we see in John 1. What is the big difference? Yeah, Roy.
Yeah, I think you're right to characterize it that way. They're, they're getting to know, they're getting acquainted with Jesus in their first calling. But there's a, it's like a, Jesus is taking it to another level. As uh, some have described it, Jesus is calling them to full-time discipleship. Notice in John 1, there's no mentioning of their leaving their vocations behind. There's no mentioning of becoming fishers of men. But here, that's what Jesus says. Essentially, stop being fishers of fish. You're now going to become fishers of men. I need, I'm calling you now to full-time discipleship. And these men have come to know who Jesus is. And so they're already willing to do what Jesus says. They do leave behind their vocations. They become full-time disciples, ready to learn from him, ready to minister with him. By the way, just so we're reminded, when we think about being a fisher of men, let's not think about modern recreational fishing. This isn't somebody casting a line with a hook, with some bait, and then hoping to get a fish. Remember the fishing that these kind of disciples practiced in their vocation. Net fishing. Fishing where you work together with a whole bunch of other guys to get in a huge catch of fish. Even drag net fishing where you're getting hundreds of fish uh, in, in one set of fishing. That's the image that Jesus has in mind when he says you're fishers of men. They're going to be, in a sense, casting nets, bringing in boatloads of people into God's, or into God's kingdom. But he needs them to be full-time. He can't make them into fishers of men. Or he needs to have them, their full attention, their full amount of time. He needs them to be with him all the time if he's going to disciple them, make them into fishers of men. Jesus says he will do this. Sinful and weak as you are, I will make you disciples into fishers of men. I will cause you to catch and even save men. Come follow me. Come learn from me. Be with me all the time. Now note that John, in his gospel, he didn't tell us that these were fishermen, at least not, a, not right away. But now we hear in Matthew, Matthew, these disciples are not only from Gentilish Galilee, but they're just fishermen. And these men are not impressive from a worldly perspective. In fact, when we look at the full complement of the 12 disciples, as Jesus calls them, it's kind of a motley bunch. Most of the men are fishermen. We also have a traitorous tax collector and a former partisan and terrorist against Rome. This is the group. They're mostly uneducated. They have thick Galilean accents. This is what God chooses to call. These are the fishers of men. These are the disciples. Why would God choose these 12? It goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? The glory of God is not seen through the honorableness, the greatness, or the strength of men. It's in the greatness of God using weak and contemptible and those that are considered of low account among men. Same concept. God using the weak to shame the strong. He will cause his disciples to rely on him and not themselves and thereby give God all the glory. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 is where we see that concept of the weak shaming the strong spelled out specifically. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, 
and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you, Corinthians, are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is how God does salvation. This is his wisdom. So bringing this all to a conclusion, what are main takeaways from these passages describing Jesus calling his first followers and beginning his ministry? We see at least three things. One, Jesus again is showing himself to be the man who identifies with sinners, yet to be the God who is able to save those sinners and who will one day reign over the whole earth as king. Two, Jesus' ministry begins in a way consistent with the nature of God's whole gospel plan. The Messiah from Snoozeville, Nazareth, calls a bunch of fishermen into full-time discipleship in preparation for what will be their full-time ministry. God is already using the weak to shame the strong for his glory. And three, once the disciples found the Messiah... They told others and even brought people to Jesus in order that those persons might meet and become disciples of the Messiah as well. Such behavior is completely appropriate considering the greatness of Jesus and the later official calling of these disciples as fishers of men. But what do these truths mean for us today? Now we come to step three of our method. Let's talk about application. Many ways we can apply this text, but... I'm just going to focus on three that relate to the main truths of the text. First, there's application regarding our own salvation. Like those, like the salvation of the Jews in the first century and the, the Gentile at, the, at that time, it all rested on a Nazarene who came as both son of God and son of man. God's son became a man's son in accordance with the scriptures in order to save men and reign over the whole earth. He is the Messiah in whom we must believe. He is the Christ in whom we must trust. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who provides the covering that we all need as sinners. So we must repent and believe in this Savior, the only Savior. We too must become his disciples. And as we do, let us praise the Lord for him and live lives worthy of him and of the salvation that is in him. Second, we have become a part of God's great plan of the weak shaming the strong. We're just like the fishermen that Jesus called. We're just like the church of Corinth that didn't have anybody great in it. According to the world, we too in the 21st century, we're not wise, we're not mighty, we're not of noble birth. But in Christ, we become wise. We become mighty. We even become royalty, inheritors of an everlasting kingdom. All the blessing and riches of God are ours. In Jesus. Therefore, let us live differently from the world. Let us not seek what the world seeks. Let us not cling to what the world clings to. Let us not love what the world loves. But seek the things which are ours above through Jesus. Let us not court the favor of the world, trying to make ourselves seem cool or sophisticated or popular or cultured as if we could 
gain their favor and somehow gain some influence for Christ's sake. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Love of the world is treason toward God. We cannot serve two masters. We do want to love the world when it comes to salvation, but we don't want to love the, um, not the good opinion, but we don't, we don't want to seek the world's favor in an ungodly way. We don't want to become friends, in a sense, with worldliness, with the world system. So let us stop being like the world, but in fact show the world how different we are from them because of our love for Christ. We must be the light of God's great wisdom and power that exposes man's so-called wisdom and self-righteousness. And finally, and along the same lines, understand that we are fishers of men as well. The ministry of gospel reconciliation has been not only given to the disciples, but is given to those who are their disciples, that which has been passed down all the way to us. We, too, are made by Jesus into fishers of men. It is our duty, but also our reasonable response. After all, you, if you're a believer, you have found the Messiah. You have found the Savior. Or rather, you have been found by him. Therefore, will you not tell anybody? Will you be silent when you have such a treasure? Are you not grateful that someone told you about Jesus? Someone confronted you about your need for Jesus? If you are thankful at all, why do you not do the same for others, for your fellow man? Jesus came to save the whole world. Salvation has been extended to the whole world. And we are a part of that. We are made into fishers of men. Let us not give excuses. Let us not say, oh, God will just send someone else. It's uncomfortable. Or I don't want to experience rejection or suffer hardship. Or I just don't feel like I'm able to do it. We have the promises of God. So when we refuse to obey the Lord in this way, we put him to the test. We appear to God like Moses saying, God, I'm not a good speaker. I've never been a good speaker. I don't know what to say. Send someone else. Did not God make the mouth? Will he not teach us what to say? You promised that. So let us obey the Lord in this way. Let us love our fellow man in this way. Let us go after them as fishers of men. We have the promises of God. Well, we're out of time for today. And that's it for this week and this quarter. Next week is a special Sunday school. I won't be with you next week. You'll be doing something different. But the following week, we will begin a special Sunday, summer Sunday school mini-series. And I'll be back with you then. If you have questions or comments on today's lesson, please email me or talk to me in some other way. And I will see you again soon. Let me just pray real quick. God, we thank you for this word. Pray that it would have its effect, that people meditate on it, and that we would give you glory, love you even more for what we've heard from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.